Hear now a reading from the lively word of God. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love, do not treat lightly all the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, our officials, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until today, you have been just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our officials, our priests, and our ancestors have not kept your law or heeded the commandments and the warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and in the great goodness you bestowed on them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you and did not turn from their wicked works. Here we are, slaves to this day, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power also over our bodies and over our livestock at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. The word of the Lord. Our sermon series continues today on rituals as we reflect on the ways our practices in worship shape our faith and shape our very worldview. Rituals in worship are not entertainment to be consumed. Instead, they are actions in which what we intend and what we believe are being enacted over and over and over again. Through our rituals, God speaks to us. Through our rituals, we are being shaped in the very dying and rising of Christ. And these actions have the power to fan the flame of our commitment, even if our flame flickers on some days and on others, dies out. At some times, it is only the rituals of ashes, people, light, prayer, meal, book, table, baptism, that hold us in their meaning until we begin to know in the deepest part of ourselves what the rituals really symbolize. The light of Christ burning inside us and shining bright in witness in the world. The people of God coming at God's call in all of our diversity to be Christ's body. The thanksgivings and laments of the prayers of the people offered in response to the word, joining our voices to Christ's and the Spirit in interceding for the world God loves. How can we ever do this? We are a bit like children playing in the sandbox who are learning how to be human beings in school, family, and the world. And so they play and they practice in order to learn. They learn through play how to become who they will become. When we are learning more about something 
we believe that we haven't mastered yet, like being the light or the body of Christ, we feel like maybe we're frauds and that everyone is going to know that we really do not know what we are doing. This is the time when it is helpful to employ a theological phrase, fake it till you make it. (laughs) On the days when we don't feel we are capable of much of anything, that approaches confidence, mastery, ability, or gift. It is in these times that the rituals become foundational. Foundational in shaping us and kind of holding us until we can grasp the truth more fully and completely. On these days when we are a bit broken, rituals have the power the ability to glue our brokenness back together. Like with glue, sometimes the cracks still show. We are human, and we don't and we can't achieve perfection. And just like the kids on the playground, we are still learning how to be light, how to be the body of Christ, and we get frustrated But we return to the sandbox because we know how it is, how important it is to learn how to be part of a group. We keep coming back to church to enact our intent and beliefs once again, over and over to be shaped in the very dying and rising of Christ each and every Sunday. Each and every Sunday, we pray the prayers of the people after the sermon. In our tradition, we believe God's word, that when God's word is read and proclaimed, it evokes a response in the people of God. Our response of faith mirrors the actions of the Israelite community in Nehemiah. They had returned from exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, for the first time in the Bible, the law of God is interpreted and read for the people. The word read and interpreted was received with great emotion and celebration. We are told the people wept. In chapter 9, a prayer is offered in response to that word read and interpreted. The prayer begins in thanksgiving and in naming all that for which the people have to be thankful. And the list is long and as confession is made for their unfaithfulness. After the thanksgiving, there is a turn in the text. Using the words, now therefore, the Israelites acknowledge the reality of their situation and they turn to God in intercessory prayer. They remind God that they are still slaves. And not only slaves, but they are slaves in the land that God gave them to enjoy. They cry to God and beseech God to continue the cycle of deliverance God has enacted on their behalf throughout the years. 
in our ritual of prayer, we make the same turn that the Israelites did in Jerusalem so many thousands of years ago. We thank God for creation, for mercy, for forgiveness, our families, for covenant keeping, and we do so with full and grateful hearts, but we also realize that our now, therefore, moment is coming. It is the moment when we are standing right in the middle of thanksgiving and our weeping comes upon us because we too struggle with the realities of our situations. So we make the turn of now, therefore. And we beseech God to move heaven and earth to come to our aid and that of the world God so loves. For us as Christians... Christ is at the very center of this prayer, and it holds it all together. As Paul writes in Romans, Christ is the one who, risen from the dead, intercedes for us. The Spirit is the one who prays the prayers that we can't even articulate because of our suffering, our sadness, and our anger. But the inarticulate prayers are heard and blessed by God, by the very power of the Spirit's abiding presence with us. Our thanksgivings witness to the fact that we serve a God that is good. And so we can release our stranglehold on bitterness. But if we stay in thanksgiving alone, we run the risk of having a sort of triumphalism mentality as if the truly religious get to rise above all actual suffering. We run the risk of accepting the status quo as if we are to praise God for all conditions and realities of circumstances rather than pushing back against evil and injustice in order to hope in God's promise and God's future. We need the laments because without them we might be tempted to hold on to our bitterness and refuse the comfort of God, refuse to consider trust and belief in God's past past actions of redemption on our behalf. There are real reasons to offer thanksgiving, and so we do. Chief among them is Christ's resurrection. All of the heartache and hopelessness have been gathered up in Christ, who is among the suffering, the brokenhearted, and the sad. There are real reasons to lament and beseech God for God's help, to cry out and demand like the psalmist, for God to rise up and come to our aid, just like God has done in the past. But the ground of our prayers is both, thanksgiving and lament. One without the other is incomplete. One of you shared this quote with me this past week from the book, The War I Finally Won, by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. And I believe it articulates the duality that is necessary in our prayers. One of the characters in the book is a Jewish teenager from Germany 
the book is set in 1940. She's staying with a Christian family in England during the start of Passover. In explaining salt and parsley at the Seder meal, she uses this sentence. We dip parsley in salt water because we replace our tears with gratitude. We do not need to say that every tragedy or loss is part of God's plan. What we can say is that in every tragedy or loss, God is still God and moves our lives, our institutions, our circumstances toward what is good. The questions of why God lets something happen are unanswerable. I'm not saying they are unimportant, but I wonder if we can instead has, ask how we can be partners with God in God's world to bring about good and to work towards God's kingdom. This morning, some of the members of the Wednesday evening prayer class have written prayers and will pray the prayers of the people as a group. It is very important that these prayers are an act of the whole congregation as Christ's royal priesthood, of which our children are a vibrant part. The prayers of the people turn us in the direction in which Christ desires us to follow him into the world that God so loves. In our prayers of the people, we turn outward in the direction of the suffering of the people in this place and also in the world. We are turned outward to pray for strangers and enemies to pray for the least of these and to pray for the mightiest, to pray for what we can't understand and to pray for what we understand of human nature all too well. If we don't feel like praying for rulers whose actions we condemn or for situations so painful we can't speak through the tears, we fake it till we make it. Maybe this is where the strength of the rituals are experienced. They are the glue that holds our community together in its common worldview and beliefs. If we believe as a community, then on the days that we can't personally pray, we trust the community is praying. And we can rest in the knowledge that our inarticulate murmurings are being heard and taken before God by Christ himself, interceding for us and the Spirit articulating every word for us. So what will you pray? Amen.